Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking's bi-weekly podcast. I'm your host, Tom McKenna, and with me this week are Mike Pekovich. Hey, guys. Matt Kinney. Hello, everyone. Ben Strano. And behind the camera is Jeff Rose. Hey. Hey, Jeff. Oh, he said something. It's going cool. <laughs> Before we uh, begin in earnest, I figured uh, we had a new issue kind of arriving in people's mailboxes. Um Maybe talk about some highlights and some of our favorite items, articles. Yeah. How about you, Mike? Want to go? Uh, yeah, I'll go right to the back of the book, to the back cover. Um, it's a really awesome chair by Bern Chandley from Australia, who's a great chair maker. He kind of blends kind of like the Windsor style along with sort of more kind of contemporary elements as well. Um, it's a beautiful chair, definitely well-deserving of being on the back cover. What I like about it is the fact that this is something that both John Benson and I came across independently and almost simultaneously on Instagram. And um, I saw that and said, oh, that'd be a great back cover. And I was about to go over to John Benson. John came over and said, Michael, do you think this would be good on the back cover? I said, yeah, John, I think it would. So that's kind of cool. So I think it kind of represents, um, I don't know, the new era of, of woodworkers, finding woodworkers, getting exposed to a lot of people around the world doing really awesome stuff. Yeah. So congratulations to Byrne. Well-deserved. And um, it's a really cool chair. It is a, a beautiful chair. It's a great back cover. <laughs> How about you, Matt? What about, uh, <clears throat> do you have any favorite articles, topics, furniture? Well, I haven't seen the whole issue yet. I only get to see the parts that I work on until it's really out. It's um, been out for like two weeks. Two weeks. I've not been in the office for like two weeks. <laughs> um, I, re- I this is uh, there's two articles in here that I worked on. Uh, one of them is by uh, Phil Morley, mm-hmm. also from who we also found on Instagram. A fantastic furniture maker who uh, trained in London and uh, came to the United States on a whim one summer to work in a camp in Maine, where they had kids from Boston would come up and he was teaching woodworking and something really bad happened in the shop on his first day there. And so he needed a shop. They decided to give him a shop assistant who was this young woman and he met her and they fell in love and they got married. And then later he came back to the United States and to live here. That's a great story. Hmm. And it has nothing to do with woodworking. And he made furniture in between. And he made furniture. But it's a great technique about how to glue up thin panels. It's something I'd never seen before. He uses those Veritas bench blades uh, to apply pressure while he's uh, taping the joints and everything. It's really cool. And then there's uh, an article with uh, Craig Thibodeau about uh, inlay, using modern materials uh, for inlay. And it's this sort of almost mother of pearl-like inlay banding or stringing and it's flexible it's yeah. flexible yeah so you can go around arcs and so forth uh it's really cool and that was a fun article to go out and shoot at craig's place um in san diego yeah craig does amazing work it's really nice to be able to get his techniques into the magazine because he's so high end mm-hmm. sometimes it's very difficult to think you know how can we get this into like eight pages or whatever this entire um technique or, or right. piece of furniture. But he's making a living doing it, which means his techniques are really sound and yeah. efficient and really right. smart. Yeah, right. he makes, yeah, he does, uh, he does make a living. And one thing that's cool, you think about woodworking is, like, I think about the stuff that Craig does, and you think, oh, it's just furniture making woodworking, but not really. What he does is like a whole nother craft, you know? It's like this separate craft that he's an expert at in addition to making furniture. He's I, ma- yeah. yeah, he's making a living completely. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, now he's working on a yacht. <laughs> he's, he's got some connections to a boatyard, so he does, you know, high-end yacht work. But it's not... I don't know if he's really building, like, finished furniture. I think he's sometimes doing just kind of carpentry-type stuff, um, building cabinets for, for these yachts. So mm-hmm. it's not like... You know his his stuff, but it's it's kind of a cool cool thing. If you're in San Diego, might as well work on yachts. Yeah, yeah. I just meant like you know, like turning is. You think turning is part, and in, a, in a way, it's the broad part of woodworking. But turning is yeah. really a craft and technique unto itself, yeah. right. separate or from traditional furniture making. Kind of, I would put chair yeah. making in that. Yeah. Area as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Mark. so what Craig does is mainly sheet goods, but it's it's high end veneer. Marketry, marketry, really yeah. clean work. 
Yeah. And he's getting some really cool mechanical stuff too, like moving furniture. Oh yeah, that's you know? right. It's it's kind of out there, um, yeah. but amazing. Yeah. He was commissioned to make some uh, puzzle boxes. And so he had ordered some puzzle boxes from Japan, and or he got them in a store that sells Japanese goods in San Diego, and he had them when I was there. They were really cool. And the precision of these puzzle boxes, which reminds me, there's a guy on Instagram that, oh, I can't think of his name right now, which doesn't help anybody, but he makes amazing <laughs> puzzle boxes. Oh, that guy. Yeah, that Keegan. Guy. <laughs> Keegan something or another. Uh, we'll talk about him later, because it, it might be cool to have him in the magazine. Cool. Cool. Well, one of my favorite articles was Chris Bexford doing a bunch of gifts, and it kind of timed perfectly for me because my anniversary was coming up, and I figured, oh, I'll be, I have this cherry scrap block or leg, you know, might be fun to do something with it. So I made his little uh, tea candle holder, and one of the things I discovered while I was doing it was how nice it is to be able to do something you know, essentially it took me maybe four hours mm-hmm. total, you know, it was like half hour, four to five minutes at a time in the shop, just putting together something that was nice, basic and finishable <laughs> in yeah, like a day. Definitely. So that was fun. I, I And I liked the other pieces in there. Um, and they're really cool because like I said, it's, they're, they're tasteful. They're, they, you know, they've got the Chris Beckford seal of approval. Um, and they're really, they really are quick to make. So, you know, with the holidays coming up, you know, jam on it and go out to the shop and make some of them. But I also like Mike Korzak's uh, bookcase, which, you know, you think of bookcase, you kind of think, you know, square, rectangular, pretty plain, but he's got this base on there that uh, could drive you nuts. Building, pretty complex. Yeah, it's really shaping. nice. Mm-hmm. Definitely echoes of Garrett Hack's work, and he's influenced by Garrett, but it's a really nice combination of curly maple case. What is the base made out of? It's kind of... Babinga. Babinga. And then he added a couple drawers at the top of the bookcase as well. And that has to be Babinga as well. The drawer fronts look like they match the base. They kind of tie everything together. Yeah, I think so. It's one of those those things that's like, oh, that's a nice bookcase. But then when you get into it, it's like, it is an insanely complex thing to make. It's a bookcase, all right. Oh, I forgot about the John Reed Fox designer's notebook. Yeah. Anytime John Reed Fox is in the magazine, it's a joy. Because... Homie rocks it out. <laughs> I don't think you're on a homie name basis with John Reed Fox. Yet. I barely know him. You if know. you Google homie rocks it out, John yeah. Reed Fox comes he up. He does. Yeah. I kind of fear what you're going to find if you uh, Google that. This but... is an amazing rap video on YouTube where John Reed Fox is <laughs> rapping in his shop. Speaking of rapping in his shop, Chris Gochner did um, a really cool review of Dovetail Saws. And that was a a different approach to tool reviews than we, we typically do. Usually we, we publish, you know, every piece, every tool rather that we test and we talk about each individual one, but Chris and uh, a bunch of students of his and woodworkers, you know, gave uh, a whole bunch of dovetail saws a test ride and basically picked seven of the, of the favorites. Yeah. So every saw in the review are saws that Chris would recommend for one reason or the other. And they, they yeah. vary in price point and feel and weight and handle size and shape. But depending on what you're looking for, they all represent, a, a, you know, either a good value or a really expensive saw that works really well. But <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> their priorities are. So, and I got to try out a lot of saws that I knew sort of only by name, yeah. uh, only head to head. And that was really fun on different woods and a little bit eye opening. So, very cool. Yeah, it was great that Chris was was open to that because you know the whole idea of of hand tools, but hand saws in particular. There's a lot of personal interaction that happens between the user and the saw, you know, in terms of grip, um, hang, and all that stuff. And so, you know, one person's opinion may not be the the uh, end all, yeah. you know, when it comes to hand tools. So it was great that he got um, a bunch of different influence or uh, interp- interpretations or. Um, testing opinions of the tools. Yeah. So, all right, let's get to um, the first question. Cool. And this one comes from Mike. And Mike says, I've heard you promote pre-finishing before, and I've been doing this for more and more, but how far do you go? I'm hesitant to finish inside surfaces without doing the outside for fear of warping or cupping. Would putting one coat on the outside be a smart option? It's not 
I don't think it's always necessary to do that, like for casework and stuff. Um, I think the operative thing is to pre-finish fairly soon to when you're actually gluing everything up. I think that's a good idea. Um, however, I, I did make a train table years ago for my son out of plywood, and I just put got some green paint and rolled it on like one side of a half-inch sheet of plywood. That's a really bad idea. <laughs> It was like a mega potato chip. It's like so, you know. So there is something. Is that when the the, uh, the skateboard rink started in the backyard? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah, Yeah, you want to pre-finish, like so you pre-finish and then you assemble. Yeah, that's you know you don't pre-finish and set it aside and then go do other you know joinery and this and that and the other thing and you know take a week off to play golf or you know you finish and then you assemble it. Yeah. And I think it depends on the piece. Are you flushing joinery after the fact? Are you planing down a frame and panel door so the frame is nice and flush? In that case, you're not finishing anything. Mm-hmm. You might pre-finish a panel. Uh, for my work, a lot of the joinery kind of sticks out, which means I'm not doing any flushing of surfaces afterwards. So I will do everything from a single coat of shellac and sand it down to single coat of shellac and sand it down, but on the inside faces, hit it with two or three more coats, so that's like done, done. Um, All the way to completely finishing every single part, just about up until I'm ready to rub out and wax, but then I'll glue it up at that point. So you go from parts to glue up to finished piece of furniture. Like, Mm -hmm. boom, Mm -hmm. you're done. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah, when anything of mine that I make... I, the inside gets finished completely yeah. before I glue it up. And with small boxes, it's very helpful because the shellac and uh, I don't w- normally wax the inside, but I'll shellac it and uh, the glue will just pop right off. Right. So I don't have to worry about squeeze out on the inside of the box, but I do that with cabinets and other things. Um, I think, oh, one place I would not pre finish, but this is completely probably off topic, but. Uh, is uh, Kumiko. I don't finish that at all. I don't either, but people have asked me a lot about what kind of finish would I do, and I said if I do anything, I'd go get a rattle can of shellac at Home Depot and just spray it with the shellac after it was assembled. Yeah. Why don't you wax inside of a box? Um, Well, because if you get the... No, because the the wax I use doesn't really smell bad. It smells nice. Um... But I'm always going to have to sort of go back there and pop that glue off. So if you're in there popping that glue off, you're just going to scrape the – just kind of scratch the glue off anyways. I mean, the wax is going to come off a little bit, and then you're going to have to re-wax it. So might as well just wait to wax it. Mm -hmm. And smell. I mean, I've made the mistake of waxing the inside of like a wall cabinet for wine glasses. Mm -hmm. Um Eight years ago. <laughs> <laughs> What'd you wax it with, though? Something Mutton smelly. John, I don't know. Johnson's paste right? It's just still smelly. A mix of mutton tallow and tapenade. <laughs> well, it's funny. When it comes to, I haven't really done a whole lot of pre-finishing, but I did do it on the cabinet on stand I made, and I did it on the aprons and on the, the lower stretchers, and I was just... I, thinking I didn't want to have to try to get finish on those small parts and with the insets and everything, just I figured it would be a nightmare to do after assembly. And it was great because, yeah, the, the glue did pop right off. Yeah. So it was very helpful. So I'm kind of a big fan of pre-finishing and we'll plan on doing it more in the future. I don't think I do enough of it. Well, I haven't experimented enough with it. But uh, Well, let's get on to question number two. This one comes from Steve. And Steve says, I just took a huge leap and bought a saw stop. I ordered Shield T9 spray as well so I could protect the cast iron. The saw arrived before the Shield. I got nervous and covered the cast iron with paste wax after assembly. Now the spray came, and I would like to use it to give my cast iron better long-term protection, but it's covered in wax. Do you think I could spray the Shield over the wax? The moisture level in my shop is not consistent, so I feel it's important to protect my investment. Definitely a good thought, protecting the investment. 
You definitely could spray it over the wax. I mean, there's... I don't know what would happen. There's probably solvents in the bow shield, which would dissolve the wax. That's what I would think. Obviously, I mean, you could do it. I don't know whether you should do it. Oh. <laughs> but, <laughs> I, mean, I don't know what it's going to do. Well, you could just take the wax off. Just, yeah, that's really easy. Just yeah. wipe it, get get a rag and put mineral spirits on it yeah. and just clean it off. Yeah. yeah. And then spray your, your bow shield T9 on there. Yep. Yeah. I'm surprised you didn't go with the, uh, the CRC uh, product, which was our best overall, not the bow shield. Hmm. Uh, well, the yeah, CRC we, stuff is a little bit harder to find, isesn't it? You got to like both shields you can get at the yeah. Woodcrafts and Rocklers and places like that. Right, right. Yeah, you can buy that st- the CRC stuff on Amazon, and I think they sell it at Home Depot now. Oh, they do? Is that like a drying sort of stuff? It doesn't leave it no, greasy? No, it, dr- it didn't molly? leave, you know, when the... <laughs> you know, I I tested. I was a bunch in a band of, once called Dry Molly. <laughs> no, it's flogging Molly. <laughs> um, I did a tool test in 2012 on on rust uh, protection, and the um, that CRC stuff didn't leave a feel. You know, mm. like like it didn't feel, at least to me, it didn't feel like grease or anything. Like some of those coatings, you get kind of a. I don't know an uncomfortable feel to it, but I think it's fine for machines. I don't. I don't use that stuff on my hand tools. I use jojoba oil on my hand tools. Jojoba. I think it's pronounced it? jojoba. 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 Same as camellia oil. It's a vegetable yeah, based yeah, oil. Yeah. And it didn't do as well in the um, the overall rust test, but we were pretty extreme in, mm. in what we were putting the steel through. Um, but again, yeah, it's it's uh, it's kind of you know it it just it it doesn't stink when you when you spray it on and, and yeah. it doesn't feel bad at least but to it me. It does turn solid at about fifty degrees. Jojoba. Oh, does it? Yeah, jojoba. Yeah, it does. I know that from experience. Yeah, it freezes or it turns, but so does like uh, olive oil and Crisco. I use Crisco. Use Crisco. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that's what they do in the deep South. Uh, <laughs> but, um, actually, I, you know, I just said Woodcrafts and Rocklers and I hate it. I, you know, you ever know sports announcers, they'll say like, uh, you're Tom Brady's and you're Drew Breeze's. And it's like, no, there's only one Tom Brady. You don't put it. I hate that when they do that. I just did it. Huh. What do you use? <laughs> <laughs> On your machines. He uses your jojoba oils. I use your jojoba oils <laughs> and your uh, vegetable oils. Your WD-40s. Yeah, sometimes products should come with pronunciation guides, you know, on them somewhere. Some of the spray stuff, it protects, but even better, it just kind of makes it's kind the of a surfaces a little slipperier, like on your joiner. Yep, on your joiners. Yeah, <laughs> that's a- <laughs> you got your joiners and your table saws. <laughs> um, I actually here's the one thing I love. One thing I love about my table saw, and my joiner, both of them are old. Both of them have patina. Neither one of them rusts ever. Yeah. So I don't put anything on them. Uh, I may occasionally wax them, but not very often. My bandsaw, which is a new bandsaw will rust if uh, I'm not careful. What it'll rust is like it's cool in my garage and then I open up the garage door and instantly there's that change in temperature so right. you get all that condensation. If I'm not careful, it'll rust in like two minutes. Yeah. It'll be a, you know just a film of rust over it. Right. So that one I put, uh, sometimes I put, I'll put waxy lit on it, which is that uh, stuff that Michael Fortune really likes. It's a, uh, It's made to... They spray machines with it in industrial settings to make them more slippery. Mm. And um, he uses that as a glue resist. Right. Yeah. yeah. He puts that down before he glues things up, and the glue just comes right up off yeah. of it. Yeah. Yeah. I so. learned the hard way about rust when I, I had my – it actually changed where I had my shop. I had stuff out in the garage, and <clears throat> after I moved in, I I just put some blank, some moving blankets over my table saw and uh, didn't go out there for a couple of weeks. And when I did, I pulled the, the blanket off and half of the saw table had flash rust on it oh. from just that short period of time. So I was like, well, this isn't going to work out. So I moved everything inside. Time for a tool test. Time for a tool <laughs> test. I don't know if that, that spurred it, but, but it's quickly how fast rust happens. Yeah. You know? I mean, I'm, my basement is, it's a basement, but I keep, you know, I have a dehumidifier. I've got desiccants and I don't really have much of an issue, you know, occasionally. Occasionally, I'll see little snippet, little pieces of, or areas rather, of, of flash rust on my table saw. But um, there's our next sticker. 
Rust happens. Rust happens. One eight hundred eat rust. <laughs> Put that on your car. <laughs> Before I, I had my shop insulated and I had rust issues, I found that I just cut a piece of quarter inch um, plywood or piece of MDF or something the size of the tabletop and mm-hmm. just throw that on there, and it keeps the rust off a hundred percent. I just buy a new table saw every time on yeah. rust. Yeah. Just grind down the top a sixteenth of an inch. I just, yeah, I take it. I just put the old one out in the yard. And put then, it to the planer. You know, put it out in the in the in the in the woods behind the house. Next to your old toilets that you use as planters. <laughs> yes, the farm truck. <laughs> the, old, the old Cadillac. Yeah, a couple of couches are out there. <laughs> it's going to be a nice outdoor living space pretty soon. <laughs> Get a fire pit, a few refrigerators. Quite romantic. Um, all right, well, let's get to, I think we, do we answer this question? Yeah, I think we did. Uh, it's time for our all-time favorite jig of all time for this week. Do you want to hit us off, Matt? Uh, sure. Uh, so mine uh, is one I've been using a lot recently, although I've had it for a long time. Uh, I think that uh, Ben has a picture of it to put up, don't you? I don't think you sent me one. Well, I sent you like four. Remember you said the picture got really big on your screen and you thought it was mesmerizing? Oh, you did. Oh, my goodness. I did, yeah. He was really mesmerized. Yeah. That's on me. Yeah. That's, that's, so, that's nice. anyways, it's a miter, a jig I use to do miters on really small box sides and also on anything else that's really small that needs a miter. So, sometimes I'll use it. Uh, there's a box I make. Uh, an ebony box I make that where I cut the lid off the body and then I wrap it at the bottom of the lid and the top of the box. And I go back and I glue in these tiny little mitered strips into the rabbit in the top and it fits over the bottom, right? Anyways, um, you can read about it in my forthcoming book, which comes out next year. (laughs) Um, But, so it's this awesome little jig. It's, oh, look, there it is. So, um, so it fits in my my vice, and uh, it angles back, and it's just uh, you know two uh, pieces of maple uh, fit into a, you know attached to a piece of plywood, and it's all mitered. And I do have a clamp on it when I'm doing box sides. I clamp the box side down and just form the complete miter uh, starting from a square edge. And uh, but I also use it with a chisel to do um, if I need miters on a l- tiny little piece of you know like the spacers between boxes when I make these stacked boxes those get mitered at the corners mm-hmm. and they're like a quarter inch thick by a half inch wide and I'll miter those with a chisel using that and I've been using it a lot recently um, and I really love it I'll use it to make uh, mitered liners that fit inside boxes. Um, and it's just a very handy thing to have because miters on small things are, are very difficult. You, you cannot, like some of the boxes I make are, they'll have ends that are only, uh, one and a three quarter inches long Mm -hmm. and a one and a quarter inches tall or something. And you really shouldn't be doing that on the table saw because you can't even get a clamp in there. Right. Uh, and, um, yeah, use a radio alarm saw. You should use a radio alarm <laughs> saw with a dado set on it, <laughs> or maybe a rabbiting bit in it. <laughs> um, a lawyer just walked by. <laughs> <laughs> it is frightening what people use radio alarm saws for. Um, but you can put it in there and very quickly form a, an accurate and and clean miter. That's what I really like about forming miters with hand tools is that the surface you get from them is better than the surface I get from my table saw. Sure. And so they glue up to be tighter joints. Mm -hmm. Um, So you don't have an end stop on this? Not built in, no. And I don't really use it because um, when I uh, am making something like – if I'm doing little trim pieces that go around something, you're just marking with a pencil line there, and then you can – pair it and test the fit. Uh, I'm doing box sides. I cut those to length. You cut them to length square, and then you just pair right up to that corner. Right up to the corner, and then you stop, and it doesn't take any length off. So um, although I know in the past I have used a stop on it, but I've found that it's just as easy to, if you have it the everything the right length, 
you just pair until you get to that co- the, the point of the miter and then right. you stop. Cool. And everything ends up being the same length. It's amazing how actually I do that a lot where I cut something to length and then I do the the joinery on it, you know? Like even with Kumiko, I, I do that a lot. But um, anyways. Cool. How about you, Mike? Jig? Yeah, this jig isn't... It's not a specific jig. It's more a jig concept. Oh, no. oh goodness. Another concept. So <laughs> It's like a band of jigs, maybe. So my all-time favorite jig is the type of jig you make to solve a specific problem that would be really difficult to just kind of do. Um, and one example of that is I had made a, a little case that sat on a base, and the base had uh, splayed turn tapered legs that sort of notched into little um, rails front and back. So it's like, how do you do that? How do you, like, conceptually, I got a, a turn tapered leg, and I just need to tack it on to this rail at an angle. How do I go about doing that? Um, and so I thought, well, you need to do something kind of weird in order to make it easy. And so once I figured out the geometry of what I wanted to do, then I just sort of figured out, okay, how do I do this sort of double haunched bridle joint thing? And, well, I could do it this way. I could do it like this, and that would work. So then you put together this jig, and it works, and it does this job really well and really accurately. And then you're like, Done. That was a cool jig. Is there a picture of the jig or just the no, legs and the it's, joints? It's not about the jig. <laughs> it's about the concept. <laughs> it's, the con- it's a jig that you put together on the spot to solve a problem at hand. And it's the only thing it's good for. And that's that all it's good yeah. for. Yeah. Yes. You pitch it after if you're not going to build uh, it again. Yeah. So it's that. It's the mindset. It's the jig mindset, the engineering of a jig to solve a problem, which to me is really fun. It's a really fun part of woodworking. I really enjoy that problem solving. And then when you nail it and it actually works the way it's supposed to work, that was really cool. Yeah. And you had fingers intact and yeah. no kickback or whatever. So. <laughs> but as an example, yes, here's the particular jig that you were just talking about. We don't get to see that. I couldn't find a picture of oh, it. Wow. Oh, give me a break. Oh, I don't, I don't buy that. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm buying that. Okay. We need to have one time like a nice 10-minute conversation about the difference between a jig and a fixture. Yes. And then also talk about why some people call a sled a boat and why it's unacceptable. I agree with that last statement. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a cross-cut boat. Wow. Oh. All right. Wow. Well, it's funny. My When I was thinking about this, I, I had – was like, well, I've got you know a saw hook. I've got a miter shooting board. But I was trying to think of something I use really a lot, and it came up, came down to bench horses. You know, I use these things all the time for, you know, glue-ups, and they're just simple three-quarter-inch MDF, you know, T-shaped things that I put on my bench. I've got three of them. Um, I use them to support pieces for finishing. I've, I've got some nail holes drilled in the, the, the upright portion of it. And I just stick brads in there with the mm-hmm. point up and I can rest, you know, pieces on top there while I finish. Um, and I wound up, it's funny, going back to what Mike was, was talking about before the concept I was during making, well, I was making the, the candle holders, the tea holders for, um, the little project I was building. Yeah. I'm drilling a big hole in a, basically a two inch block or two inch square. And I was like, well, how am I going to hold that? Bexford had a whole dedicated jig on his drill press table with a right angle fence that was all screwed down. And I think right. he had, I don't know if he had a Desteco clamp, but he had some other things to hold the, the piece. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. So I used these fences on either side of the block and clamped it to my drill press fence and it held it in place for the drilling. And all I had to do was kind of hold it at the front against the back of the fence. And I've got a video of it. I can have been post on online afterward, but, um, but those things rock and they're, they're easy to make and they're so helpful. I use them all the time. Hmm. So I just want to point out that when I suggested, let's do our favorite all time jig of the week on the podcast today, I thought that all three of us would actually show a jig as I was the only one who actually shows a jig. I sent Ben photos. (laughs) They're 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 up there. there. That's a fixture. That's a jig. 
It's neither a jig nor a fixture. It's a sawhorse. <laughs> it's a jig. A sawhorse is a jig. It's a tool. Okay. <laughs> it's a tool. Okay. It's a jig. Well, here's a, here's my favorite all time jig. Uh, it's a chisel. <laughs> it's just like. The... <laughs> oh goodness. Well, it's the first time around. Mike. It's a jig. <laughs> you know what a jig is. Okay, fine. A hinge mortising jig. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> oh, goodness. All right. We done? All right. We're done. Let's, Let's move, move on. on. Uh, oh, this is going to be a, this is a long one. This is from Will. And Will says, I'm planning to build the not-so-big workbench. The cut list indicates lumber that has been milled to finished dimensions. When going to the lumber yard, how much oversize do I need to buy the lumber? For example, the top is made of two inch thick by three and two and three quarter inch wide by about 60 inches long. In order to have that board that is milled to a finished thickness of two inches, do I need to start with 12 quarter rough, with a 12 quarter rough sawn board? In general, how thick should rough sawn boards be when planning for finished milled dimension lumber? Wow. There's there's two two layers to this question. You know, I called Ed Pernick, who made that bench, yes, and asked him this question: Is it a jig or a fixture? And he said, "Ho ho bolo." <laughs> <laughs> That's all he said. <laughs> That's old school, there. Uh, I know the answer to this question. Can I give it? Uh, yeah, that'd be nice. <laughs> <laughs> you do not need to buy twelve quarter stock. Uh, you buy eight quarter stock, and then you rip out strips that are you know roughly let's say finished inch two inches thick. So you you rip them out at two and a half. You join them and then you plane them down the two inches wide, and you turn them on edge, and the width becomes the thickness of the bench. And why do you turn them on edge? Uh, usually because that in most cases because you're going to buy a big flat sawn board and it turns that into a quarter, quarter sawn board. So if there's any movement, it will be across the width and not in the thickness. Which right? So um, it'll be more in the thickness, which is a much smaller dimension than the width. Yes, it makes it more stable. It makes it more yeah. stable. Yeah. So um, and less prone to. Cupping, cupping right. right? The whole yeah. bench top cupping up. Yep. Yeah. yeah. That was it. I mean, that that's was the it. answer. Well, I, he, well, he had another question about how oh, thick did. should rough swords be? Like a general question: How thick should rough sawn boards be when planning for finished mill dimension lumber? Well, I think that depends on the length of the part. You know, if you have like if you need something that's eight feet long and you need to finish it off straight and at two inches thick then you're going to have to probably start with something kind of thick because the possibility of cupping or bowing is more significant with something that's eight feet long as opposed to something right. that's a f two feet long. Right. Yeah. So right. Yeah. Unless you're in the fine woodworking shop. Right. <laughs> Where nothing ever cups or bows. Um, so I think it depends on the, the part that you're aiming to get out of it. Um, uh, so, but I would... That, that's the question I think more about when I'm going to resaw than when I'm going to, you know, it's like if I need a three quarter part, you could probably start with four quarter. Yeah, I mean, three quarter yeah. to seven eighths for, mm -hmm. you can usually get out of roughs on four quarter. Yep. But like you said, for a, like a six foot tabletop where those boards are going to be longer, you're pushing to get three quarters of an inch thick across a six foot length for the most part. So yeah. I would probably start with like five quarter stock if I yeah. wanted something close to an inch. Um, so I was sort of work back. If I want seven eighths of an inch, yeah, I can start with four quarter. If I want an even inch, you got to start with five quarter, you know, so like a lot of arts and crafts stuff just looks better at heavier dimensions for casework. So I'll tend to always start with five quarter stock to give me a good healthy inch thick for case sides. Mm -hmm. um, and the same thing for eight quarter stock, I'll expect to, you can sometimes squeeze out inch and seven eighths if you're really lucky. Chances are you're looking at inch and three quarter finished stock out yeah. of a rough eight quarter board. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, the other thing yeah. is like uh, Garrett once told me, Garrett Hack told me, uh, he said, I spend a lot of time looking for boards that are straight. So he said, I don't buy boards that are cupped or bowed or anything like that because if they're that way now, they're going to be that way after you mill them. Because he doesn't buy his lumber, he grows it. I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, it doesn't work, goes in the fire pile. <laughs> right. But he's, you know, and that, which is a good no, point. It's, a good it's point, like, yeah. you know, you should try to buy stuff that's as flat and uh, as, as, it, as you can find. Then it becomes less of an issue. But Mike's take on that is, I think I agree with, is that, yeah. Eight quarter, for example, it's hard to get one in seven eighths out of usually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But resawing—that's a real issue with resawing. But we're not going to address it right now. Yeah. <laughs> <kidding>. Next episode. <laughs> Next episode. <laughs> we'll have to wait for someone to send that question in. What's a question so That's someone question. can send it in? If hey. you, when you're resawing, how how over thick do you need to cut it? in order to end up at, say, a quarter inch or a half inch? Or if I want two half-inch parts, what kind of how thick do I need to start off my, my material with? Yeah. You know, half-inch. Are you asking s- that right six now? Six-quarter. No, I know the answer. Because there's a lot of questions in front of you. So email it into shoptalkattaunton.com and get in line. Look at, look at Ben cutting us off. No, I wasn't us on track. I wasn't asking that question. I said that's a, it's a good question, though. I was joking. Get a load of big old Ben. Yeah. Putting the hammer down. All right, let's move on. Ben says we've got to move on to ben the next Hammer question. Strano. Uh, yeah, okay. Let's move on. Uh, this one comes from Amy. And uh, Amy says, What does clean, accurate joinery really look like? Sometimes it seems that you spend 98% of your time in the shop on setup in order to make sure that every joint is absolutely perfect. This is a deep dive. Yeah. You want to get it started, Mike? Mike, Mike, Mike. So the question is, is what, How perfect is perfect? What's good enough? <laughs> like, what are you shooting yeah. for? And I think it's a moving target depending on what you're doing. Um Sometimes, uh, so, I mean, so the question alludes to setup, which to me kind of says machine work. And I think there's kind of two ways to go about it. Uh, for machine work, I'm of kind of the opinion where if I'm setting something up on a table saw to some joinery tenons or something like that, I want them to be really, really, really close off the saw. Because if you're setting this whole thing up and you still have a sixteenth of an inch to hit with a shoulder plane once you're done, yeah, you're what's t- the point? What are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> um, that said, there tends to be a little bit of variance. So when I'm setting up for machinery, um, I'll tend like for tenons, I'll get something that maybe just starts, but it's a little heavy, but it, it can start. So it means it's really close to fitting. But um, and then from there. Then you get out the shoulder plane and it's one pass fits or one pass on one side, one pass on the other fits, you know. So then you kind of yeah. get this routine of fitting and things go pretty quick. Yeah. Um, yeah. The setup can take time, but in the end, the payoff is huge. Right. I always get it really to like get the tenon really close. Like it starts to fit in. I'm like, I'll hit that with a shoulder plane later. And then I just hit it with a mallet. <laughs> just jam it. Just shove it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, sometimes I think if you wait overnight, I think there must be some moisture loss in the boards or something. I'll find something is, is overly tight. You come back the next day expecting to do a lot of fitting. All mm-hmm. of a sudden, everything is kind of going together. Yeah. And then as far as handwork, joinery is concerned, that's – so for machine work, it's all about setup. You know, you're getting everything set up with test boards so that once it's set up, you can batch out a whole bunch of things without doing anything else. For handwork, it's always layout. Um, it's – it's the stress is, you know, cutting dovetails with a handsaw. Now that's easy. Um, it's going to take you about five minutes to get comfortable with your handsaw. But if the layout line you're cutting to is not in the right place, mm-hmm. you can cut perfect lines and still have a huge headache when you're done with that. So for me, layout is key, key. And um, like, for instance, if I'm cutting through tenons or dovetails, I expect, again, I spend a lot of time on the layout with the expectation that if I hit my lines, the joint is going to be really, really close to fitting if it doesn't fit perfectly right there. And it's not this big thing where, oh, yeah, it fits right off the saw. You know, it's a, some kind of parlor trick. It's like, no, 
the closer it fits off the saw, the less work you have to do and the less likely you're going to introduce gaps into that joint mm -hmm. through fitting it. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, setup is key. Spend as much time as you need, as many test pieces as you need to get it right before you start making cuts. And for handwork, really spend the time to make sure your layout is accurate, accurate, accurate before you pick up a hand tool. Yeah, I think, I think I'll answer this question in a slightly different way um, because this is something I've learned uh, in making all, you know, all these boxes and stuff. Uh, I'm going to answer a different part of her question. What does accurate joinery look like? One, it doesn't have gaps, right? So shoulders close up without gaps. Uh, miter joints come together without gaps. So if your dovetails come together without gaps, so that's what accurate joinery looks like. But I've found that I can make a box and it looks square and the miter joints are tight, but it's not square. And you will never know that it's not square. And it's completely irrelevant that it's not perfectly square because it looks square and when I fit the lid or whatever, the lid has a uniform gap around all four sides. And so your eye just doesn't pick up on the fact that it's slightly out of square. And it's somewhat – so it's sort of irrelevant. So I guess if I was – you know, what would I'm really looking for when I'm doing joinery is that uh, there's no gaps, you know, because you can make dovetails – and the dovetail angle, the slope of the tails, could vary slightly from tail to tail. Sure. But as long as the pins fit in tightly, it doesn't matter. No one's really going to register that. Right. You mm -hmm. know? So um, I think that that's the most important thing when you're making a joint is that you want it to close up tightly. I mean, I, that's not – I mean – you could have a tenon, mortise and tenon joint that closes up really tightly, but where the tenon is a quarter inch too thin for the mortise. <laughs> that's not good. You know, that's really not it's good. It's a really good butt joint. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, uh, an, a, a, an accurate joint is going to close up tightly. I think, I mean, so I think that's yeah. what you look for. If it's not closing up tightly, then you're, there's something wrong with your joint. Right. And yeah. even to, to your point, even more specifically, it closes up tightly on the show face. Exactly. Yes. That was, that was going to be one, you know, my riff on it was in terms of like how perfect is perfect. And my perspective is I always, I try to cut the joinery as best I can without gaps and that it closes up. But I do focus less on, less on aesthetics when, something is not visible. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm, I'm worried less about tear out on an interior partition or something like that or inside of a drawer pocket or things like that. So anything that's not visible, like I go for a good fit, but if it doesn't look great and works, you know, I'm kind of okay with that as long as the outside shell and everything looks really, really good. Right. I mean, or as good as I can make it. Yeah. You know? So. Yeah. I, I, yeah. In terms of how perfect is perfect, I think what I just said is how I approach it when I make stuff. And the, a lot of the things that I make are small where imperfections are more noticeable, mm -hmm. you know? So if you're building a house and that, that, you know, the, the window casing is an eighth inch out of square, that's not a big deal. Yeah. But if I'm making a tiny little box and it's an eighth inch out of square, it's fairly noticeable, right? Or if a yeah. divider is an eighth inch off, uh, then that's noticeable. So what I try to do is I try to make things as accurately as I can. You know, when I set up my table saw to cut miters, I make sure that the blade is really at 45 degrees. I make mm -hmm. several test cuts, test it with my uh, combo square. You know, I make sure that when I make my sleds to cut miters that they're accurate. You yeah. know, I make sure that my table saw is set up that when I tilt the blade – the blade is still parallel to the table and things like that. And then once I know I make it as accurately as I can, I usually the it, it works out that it's perfect enough. Yeah, if the tools are accurate, the cuts are going to be accurate. Right. And and so it's not going to be things are not going to be so wildly inaccurate that they aren't passable. Yeah. Because I mean, I'll tell you a lot of the stuff that I make, it's well, it's not perfect. You know, there's problems with it, 
But when people see it, no one ever notices them. And until you point it until out. Until you point yeah, it out. That's, isn't that a fault yeah, of woodworkers? Matt had made this beautiful <laughs> Kumiko panel working on a new design. It was like fantastic. And he brought it into the office. He's showing it to me. And the, the thing is beautiful. And Matt's going, yeah, but look right there. Can you tell that's <laughs> off? I said, no, I can't. And you need to not <laughs> say that. <laughs> you know, one of, one of the other aspects that I think is really revolutionary that I learned you know, years ago was being willing to throw something out as opposed to like, if you've got a joint that's not working together and there's small parts, sometimes it's just easier to start over again. You know, for like, even if it's a dovetail that you're, you're finding it's too gappy, just, you know, start again, try it again, instead of trying to stick wedges or anything that's going to be, you know, visible. You know, I've made many cabinets where I've stuck kind of filler strips into gaps and I look at them today and I, I just, I'm horrified by it. So I think there, you should have kind of a willingness to, start over again or at least maybe practice a lot more before you you know here's, work on the real thing here's a theory that i'm working with now uh and i've kind of learned this from instagram and but we've joked about sometimes we joke about this at the uh around each other we'll say something that is jpeg pretty in which, in other words, it means <laughs> that thing looks fantastic in a photo, but I saw it in person, and it's not as nice, you know, but it's JPEG pretty. And I think that when people look at the things you make, you have to think about them. I think the they don't pick up – like when I look at something I made, I see it in HD, right? I see it in high <laughs> definition, yes. 1020p, every, you know, everything stands out. But when uh, someone else sees it, they see it as a JPEG. And so they miss all of those little imperfections or they see it maybe not as a you know, JPEG is because one way to say it. But in other words, is they see it holistically. Yeah. Right. Whereas when we see it, we, we're picking out little parts of it and seeing it. But if you so I started to now look at my stuff after taking pictures of it. And then I go, well, actually, that doesn't look so bad. I, you know, I don't really see it. Like the panel that I, I brought in and showed you, I'm looking at the photos of it that I t put on Instagram, and I'm like, actually, that looks really good. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I'm just going to let everyone think that it's really good. <laughs> but uh, it's something I sort of the way I kind of look at it now is I think people when they see the stuff that you made, they're looking at it like it's a JPEG and you're looking at it like it's HD. Yeah. Right. And they also, I think people who don't do this have a view of that, of amazement that you actually made something sometimes. And so that aspect, I think maybe overshadows the design where someone really would like something I made, but I'm like, you know, I should have made the sides thinner or, or the top wider or something like that. I always like think of what the next iteration would be or what I would have changed if I, you know, had the time or the desire. Yeah. Something I tell students all the time is they'll, we'll be in class and they'll say, ah, oh, God, look at, I messed this up. And they're and a lot of these people are never have touched tools before. And they said, they get really caught up. And I said, you did that wrong. And they'll be like, yeah. And I'll go, but look at everything you did right. And it, then it kind of like changes their perspective on it because you might've got that one little, there might be a gap in that one little miter joint, but everything else about, what you just made is perfect. So focus on that. My approach to teaching is very similar, but if someone's really happy with what they've done, I tend to point out what was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and crush their soul. Yeah, no, this is not true. Um, yeah. All right, well, let's move on to the last question. This one is from Scott. And Scott says, do you have any suggestions for getting a burr on curved scrapers? Um, yeah, if you're talking like those gooseneck scrapers, um, which we all have, you get in, the, in the, the two pack, you get the square and then the gooseneck and everyone for some reason. I have my gooseneck scraper from probably literally 30 plus years ago. They're hard, but the, the concept is basically the same in that you want to basically file and polish an edge square to the faces of it. On a flat scraper, it's really easy. It's a little bit more challenging. Um, I tend to like to use, for square, for regular card scrapers, I have a block with a bandsaw kerf in it. You put it in, it keeps everything nice and square. You can't really do that with a curve, but you can use the same concept where 
um, get a block on a on your fairly coarse, you know, diamond plate or sandpaper, um, and just rest the curved scraper up against the block as you're working on that edge, just to keep it as square as possible. Same thing with your polishing. Because the whole thing is, the more square that edge is, the kind of the sharper the corners are and the less rounded they are, the easier it is to then turn a hook with your burnisher. Mm -hmm. And even then, I find that along the changing curve of a gooseneck scraper, some areas will just be sharper, have a better hook than other areas. And for the most part, if I'm working on an inside curve, you have a little bit of leeway in terms of the radius Mm -hmm. of the scraper you're working with, where you can just kind of fudge this the scraper until you find a area that's just cutting well yeah change the angle to yeah. angle of attack yeah um i don't know i have i don't use it enough to have perfected it and even if i did use them all the time i doubt that i would always be perfect mm-hmm. yeah i've tr- when i've done them <clears throat> i've just tried to focus on like i first find the section that fits the molding or whatever yeah. best and then i just focus on that one section and just sharpen that. And I found that because you're not, uh, it's, it's a smaller area, a smaller length of, you know, edge that you're trying to turn a burr on and all that, that it's a little bit easier, uh, to turn a hook and everything Mm -hmm. on it. And then I just get out sandpaper and sand, whatever it was I was trying to (laughs) scrape. (laughs) Wrap the scraper in sandpaper and use that to sand. When I, uh, was making uh, the shaker cupboard that I made for the magazine. You know, I bought these molding planes. I found these nice wooden molding planes somewhere. I up in Maine, uh, I think at Liberty Tool. And uh, I bought them and I sharpened them and I was going to use them to, you know, refine this thing. And I was working with maple and it just wasn't going well. So I just took the blades out and wrapped sandpaper around the bottom of the molding planes and just sanded them. That's a really good idea. <laughs> that did not make it into the article. Yes. But I did it put just it on, did. But I did put it on Instagram though. So that was that was many years ago though now. That was like in two thousand fifteen probably. Wow. Long time ago. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it for this episode of Shop Talk Live. Don't forget to head over to tartanstore.com and use the discount code SHOPTALK to get 20% off your purchase. And while you're on our site, click on over to findwoodworking.com slash sweeps to enter for your chance to win our hand tool giveaway featuring $1,000 worth of hand tools from Lee Valley Veritas. That's awesome. It also comes with a one-week stay or visit from Vic Tesla. <laughs> load up your fridge. <laughs> he likes his poutine. Please spread the word about Shop Talk Live to your woodworking friends and neighbors. Shop Talk Live is dependent on your questions, so make sure to send them in to shoptalk at taunton.com. If you're watching on YouTube, please click that thumbs-up button. Finally, you can keep up with Fine Woodworking on Instagram and on Facebook and look for all of us on Instagram as well. Thanks for listening and have fun in the shop. That's a wrap. We're done. Cool. Is that a jig or a fixture that Alan's using? That's a boat. <laughs> why, does, does it, why did people call it a cross, cross-cut boat? Why does it bother you? There's only one place where they call it a boat. North Bennett. North, North Bennett. Bennett Street School. Yeah. I don't. We need to ask Matt Wade a...